Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine, and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome along at just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday evening to Series 16, Episode 22 of Midweek Motorsport. I'm John Heintorf and for the first time in 2021, I'm outside the studio and sitting lazing around like a lazy thing uh, in the back garden and you can probably hear the birds still uh, singing. No fire required tonight it's been a scorcher 27 28 degrees celsius and i feel like summer has arrived for the most of the day i was working out in the garden listening to cricket on the radio and drinking warm tea to try and balance the interior and exterior temperatures marvelous stuff uh, tim gray is up in london where it did cloud over uh, according to what I was listening to coming from Lords earlier on today. Um, that hasn't reached us yet, Tim, but on a packed programme tonight, we have what? Very late clouding over. It was uh, gone six o'clock before uh, we first spotted any cloud. Yeah, yeah, um, last half an hour of the still, test, yeah. Still very light cloud in the skies, and I can still see some blue patches as well uh, on what has been an exceptionally hot day. And when uh, yeah. the gardener came back from his uh, lunch break, which took him rather longer than I hoped it uh, would. Uh, he said the reason he'd been delayed was that uh, he got caught in traffic as he watched an oncoming car burst into flames. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he stopped, uh, obviously, as he would, and then got uh, um, blocked in by a fire engine. So uh, couldn't, go, couldn't turn around and come back the other now, way. Now listen... As being late for work goes, that's right up there with my plane was diverted because of a rocket attack, which we have had before here on the Radio Show Limited uh, network of channels. Uh, so on a packed programme tonight, all the usual features. We've got some guests coming up as well. Uh, Shea Adam, Nick Damon, our contributors will be joining us. Our big interview tonight, if we can make everything work, uh, is... The founder of SCG Glickenhaus, Glickenhaus Cars, and that is Jim Glickenhaus joining us from the Nürburgring where they're getting ready for the 24 hours this weekend. This may uh, well be our be guestiest show of the year. Guestiest show of the year. Well, don't say that, Tim, because we've got to make everything work. Uh, Bruce Jones joining us in the second hour as well as we look forward to our full live sound and video coverage of the Nürburgring 24 this weekend and we'll try and get a couple of drivers as well um, people either there or on their way there or moving around and of course an hour later than us in Europe so we're uh, fingers crossed 
for that. Uh, we'll have your tweets if you don't mind. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the tweets coming in. Yeah, there they are. Uh, from uh, all kinds of areas this evening. At Specutainment. Quickly, let's run through the parish notices then. Chris Wales going to catch the podcasts tonight. Uh, Sim Racing Bar Stewart listening live to, to this evening. Um, good weekend to paint the garden fence. Uh, he says, and he's persuaded the missus that. No FAs tonight doing something on the Porsche. No doubt, says Brody. The Colonel uh, is listening in this evening and hopefully we'll be talking about Indy 500. Of course, we will be. Uh, Thomas Smets listening live tomorrow. Curious to hear the insight of Gearbox Girl, Cher Adam, after what he describes as a stunning Indy 500. Otter, FR. Looks like an excellent show, listening live while raking the grass and the hay. Right turn lover, spending uh, the evening uh, in the company of his favourite female. Relative. Hope your mum's fine, RTL, and catch up on the podcast. I know you will. Eric Offerdahl, uh, EFAs tonight, huddling, <laughs> huddling down in a dark, quiet room, calming down from the Indy 500. Yes. Uh, Serafina might be running late. Work call from 7.30pm UK onwards, but looking forward to the big interview. Yes, let's get fingers crossed for that. Such a lovely guy is Jim and an enthusiast too, says uh, SRBS. Uh, hello to Peter Mackay, who's listening tonight. He'll be joining us for our commentary over the weekend from N24. Two Box says, hello Two Box. You and the team in for a wild weekend at the N24. The forecast is to be believed. We've seen it all before, even hailstones. First time tuning in live this year, Austin Hillier Racing. Really looking forward to the Glickenhouse interview and the discussion on the 500. Uh, looks like a good show as always, kind of you to say that. Alexander Orchid, ball of steak, mushroom and cream pasta. Couple of hours that of washing good. up. Yeah. Tom Aiken, uh, try and talk uh, Mr. Glickenhouse into a Van Halen guitar livery. Uh, can't say that, but we'll, we'll give it a go. Chris Suku. Just finishing off some work. No AFAs this evening. Carol Brink tuning in from home. Uh, and meantime, Kevin is at the Castroville bunker. Both distracted by Padres baseball tonight. Um, uh, nil-nil in the football this evening. Proving we're live. Ian McCarthy tuning in live. I'll bring the beer and pizza. If you can, guys can provide all the usual features. Of course we can. Doug Amner. Carbonara with tomato salad and three cheese flatbed awaiting two hours of insight and entertainment and a big hello from RC Racing who was right about the Bluetooth speaker he says Kevin Glass listening live while casually driving the speed limit passing by cars going 50 to 60k over that's right I'm in Toronto he says Matt says looking forward to listening uh, listening in on the pod overnight whilst at work Otherwise, it would be Le Mans preps. Yeah, I know. But it's August, isn't it? Roll on. Dave Alcock listening tonight. A hot one in New England. Skies look like we're in, a, in for a change of weather. Patrick Drawn. Uh, Stephen Gardner on the uh, podcast. Sarah Rigby tuned in, having got home from work in time. Uh, Nick Holland. Sprinkles of Bedfordshire, but not the good kind. Heading north, perhaps. Okay. Haven't had that yet, uh, Nick. Brian, listening in, um, listening 
will be uh, listening live. Matthew Hindman says hello. Jill's out the bridge. Uh, says here for this evening, but I will be listening to the ar- archive. Air 14 clear last night. Uh, traffic was a joke, he says. Jesse and Dave Alcock, thanks for being with us. And if you want to get in touch, at Spectatainment, please. It's a packed programme tonight, so let's move on to our top story. Play the jingle, Tim. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And there's only one story to start with tonight, and that is the Indianapolis 500 at the weekend. And Helio Castro Neves joining the exclusive club of four-time Indianapolis 500 winners with his stunning victory at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He joins AJ Foyt, Alonza, Rick Mears as four-time winners of the greatest spectacle in racing. His previous victories came in 2001, 2002 and 2009, all with Penske. I felt that my car was very good since the after qualifying, um, after the, that practice. I knew I was very good. I felt the car great. I told Mike, I said, Mike, don't touch it. The car is really good. <laughs> and, um, and then carburetion day, I didn't want to run much. We just want to do some pit stop practice. Remember, this is the first time we're running. So everyone needs a little bit of a, you know, timing, understanding. Even myself, I need to be understanding what the, what the group needs because when you're going 60 miles an hour, and I have to say, I, I did not push coming in and out laps because um, I didn't want to make any mistakes. The car was so good. And um, so I just have to make sure that I stay there in the end. Once the pit cycles uh, came in, I was uh, in second place with Palou. Uh, Pato came to play a little bit. And um, <laughs> I was like, just just keep doing what I'm doing and understanding what I need to do. I lost too many races for second place here. And I was like, this is not going to be the day. And um, uh, once he was very good, he was very fast. I have to say the Ganassi guys uh, did a great job. They were very, very strong on their own. They really able to do some amazing laps. I think it was almost to 21. And um, I'm like, and I tried myself and I couldn't do it. Um, so I decided just to wait for the right opportunity. I did a couple of tries. And uh, like I said before, I remember my, uh, my, my teammate Sam Hornish uh, beating me a lot of those races that is by, by a nose. So I did a couple of tr- uh, tries to see if I would have crossed the finish line first, and I did. And uh, my strong corners were both two and four. I knew that. Um, and uh, it's just a matter of, like, waiting for the right opportunity. So, and when I saw the traffics, uh, there was a bunch of it, actually. I was like, that's it. I'm not going to wait because I need that traffic to pull me so that I can get the same speed. And when I made the move, I said, that's it. Now I just, uh, just, uh, but it was fun because uh, when I saw Hunter Ray in front of me, I'm like, is he going to block? Is he going to, what, what is he going to do? You know, I don't know. So I kind of like time again and make sure that Palou wouldn't, wouldn't uh, dive in, bomb me. And um, it was perfect. So um, uh, it was, uh, I was having a little bit of vibration towards <coughs> the end, but didn't bother me. So I just kept, kept, kept on it and um, make the right tools, change the car a little bit and, Man, when I crossed the finish line, I was like, can you believe it? <laughs> I don't believe it. Do you believe it? <laughs> I, was, I was talking to myself, so it was really fun. But this race was different. Castro Nevers drove the 06 Autonation Series XM Honda of Maya Shank racing to the team's first Indy win and their first NTT IndyCar Series victory as well. Uh, uh, you know, just it really shocked. Um, you know, I grew up in Columbus High, three hours from here, and, and we used to 
get the Indianapolis Star for the month just to keep up with the news my dad and I did. And we would listen to Rutherford, Zunzers, Andretti's, Greyhalls, and just dreamed. The minute I got out of high school and, and started driving race cars, uh, trying to figure out a way to get to this place, one, and then how to win it. And it's just... It's just, it just, it's just incredible. And uh, I got to thank Jim Meyer, uh, who came on board with MB, my wife and I, about four years ago. Four years ago. And uh, we kind of talked over at Big Woods, I remember, <laughs> over here in Speedway. <laughs> and um, we kind of came up with a plan on what we wanted to do. And um, uh, Jim, with his, uh, his connections and the people he knows, he, uh, I got to give like all the credit to him to make this happen from the basis up. It would have been a lot harder without him. And uh, I'm glad we're get get the win for you. <laughs> this is my 41st year to come to the Indianapolis 500. I've never missed it. And um, as I was kind of winding down my career, I thought what I'd really like to do is get more involved with it. I met Mike, the chemistry work. We figured out how to put a team together and put a, a plan together. But I just winning here today is just surreal. I just I don't even know what I don't know what to say. I'm just uh, our crew and our team and Elio did such a great job today. It's just it's, we're just so proud of them. Really, really are. So will we see more from Helio this season? We, you know, we carefully planned the six races that we've laid out um, to do with Elio. Um, obviously, this, you know, life's changed today. So uh, Mike and I will go back and talk about it. And, and um, there's some other complications to it that, that aren't all 100% in our hands. But we'll go back and talk about it and see where we are. We're just going to savor the moment right now. But by the way, uh, I believe that he, Elio deserves to go for a fifth Indianapolis, and we're going to do every uh, fifth, uh, win, and, I, and we're going to do everything we can to make that happen for him. Awesome. You agree? You agree, Jim? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's fantastic. <laughs> the neatest thing riding around in that Camaro convertible with him today was all the fans stayed. No one left. I mean, the place was packed, and I got to physically see the history in the making type of thing. I got to witness it. I got to see people. I thought it was 1,000 people climbing the fence all around the track. Um, and it was just, just so, just so cool to be a part of. That was really nice to see the fans climbing the fence, celebrating. Um, I did say, uh, probably, probably uh, some interviews uh, before the race that I would love to have the fans climb with me, and uh, that happened. They did. They <laughs> made it happen. So great moment, moment uh, for everyone. Especially uh, uh, after last year being so, so difficult with the with the pandemic, and uh, everybody's coming back, even that is not full. Uh, uh, percent everyone here but uh very very nice to everyone to celebrate so i couldn't be more happier you know couldn't be more happy for mike couldn't be more happy for jim they 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 did everything they were gonna they they, they did everything they told me which is they promised me give me a good car and uh and i said all right so if that's happened we we have a great chance and um just give me a chance to fight an opportunity to be up there and then i will fight and uh, they did. So um, great moment. Uh, I mean, amazing to follow the, in this group with uh, Alan's a senior, AJ Foyd, and my, my hero, Rick Mir. So super, uh, super honor to be in this group. And, but most of it, more important, is I, I love to be surrounded by great people. It was great to be with Tensky and now my, my new friends are, are really having a great time. Uh, new opportunity with this, this amazing team. And look what they're showing. They're showing already with Jack. Uh, several races this year, they, they had a little issue in the GP. They would won the race. It was the right strategy. And now we're able to uh, uh, execute. So it's a matter of time. So this is a, 
this is a great group of people, and that's why I love it. Castro Neves, who'd started eighth, finished a stirring duel with the 24-year-old Spaniard Alex Pelot in only his second Indy 500 over the closing laps, passing him with a daring outside move in turn one on lap 199 of 200. He held off Pelot's uh, Chip Ganassi racing Honda to win by 49 hundredths of a second. It hurts. It hurts a lot. Um, I didn't expect that a second place would hurt that much um, until I crossed the finish line. Um, but I'm super proud, super happy. I think uh, the number 10 NTT data car was, was super fast. I, I had the best car, so for sure. Um, I was really confident, and it was close battle until the end. Um, the good thing is that was uh, the two cars were uh, Honda-powered, so that's good. Congrats to Elio and Honda, but... Um, yeah, um, I tried everything, and it hurts, but to be honest, it's it's good to lose a, against probably one of the best. Well, probably, it's one of the best, probably the best. Um, um, and yeah, it's it's Helio. I, I don't know why, but he had three, and why he wanted four. Like, he could have <laughs> gave me one. Um, I just wanted one, but uh, it's okay. Um, we'll come back next year for sure. When I was at the pre-greet uh, listening to the anthem, um, that's the most special thing. I don't know why. Maybe because when you're sitting at home and you're a kid, that's the most, I don't know, I think that's the best part about the, the race, uh, a, a part of the race. Um, and I was there and I was like, man, we're starting P6. I'm driving the number 10 and, and I'm here in America. So I'm having a blast and I'm super proud of what we've been doing. But we got to keep on working. It's racing. It's the beauty about racing. When it hurts, um, it's good because you know that there's something better. Um, and when you win, it's like the most satisfying thing. But you cannot, um, when you lose, and, and for me, come on, we finished second on the Indy 500, on my second Indy 500. How can I be sad? It just hurts a little bit because I wanted that win more than anything. But Elio won it as well. And, and I think all the 33 drivers uh, wanted the same. So, um I'm happy. I'm living the dream, man. I'm able to drive the fastest car for the best uh, team uh, around Indianapolis and fight for it. So everything was good today. Palo's second place also puts him as championship leader, but he's not thinking about that right now. When you start thinking about the championship, you and if you're not executing um, on track, there, there's no point. And, and if you're executing on track, it makes no point either. So we just try to make session by session as we've been doing. And if we keep doing what we've been doing everywhere, I think we'll, we'll be able to fight until the end uh, for this championship. But for sure, um, it's good to get um, a little bit of, of gap now um, after the 500. I think um, we've been able to, to get a lot of points uh, in our let's say, weaker places like Texas and here. So I'm super proud about that and cannot wait to go to my area, let's say, because um, I'm more comfortable right there. But, uh, yeah, super happy and, and, yeah, we'll keep on fighting. Oh, 2019 Indy winner Simon Paginot finished third in the 22 Minals Team Penske Chevrolet. He was just 0.5626 of a second behind Castro Neves. Yeah, I was hoping. Um, I was really hoping. Uh, the big, big thing for us is uh, obviously we got caught up in the first yellow. We hadn't pitted, so we had to take an emergency pit stop uh, after lap 44. And from there, we got sent back to the back of the field um, because of the emergency pit stop. So we had 156 laps to come back to the front. What a shame. Um, you know, I really think we had 
the race car to to get it done today. Certainly, Chevy, amazing job with um, engine power in the race uh, was was amazing. Um, handling was phenomenal all day. We we managed to really adjust the car through the beginning of the race. Um, at the end, I was pedal to the metal. Like I didn't really care. I <laughs> just wanted to get to these guys and have some fun with them. But I could see Elio was was playing a very smart game. Obviously, he knows how to win the race, and 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 Alex was was trying. Uh, his best to hold him off, but Elio was just biding his time, and and because of that, the the draft uh, was difficult in first fourth place, and it was difficult to get through Pato. Um, we did on the last lap, and uh, I thought I may have had a shot in turn four, uh, but Elio was too far. So um, congrats to him. Obviously, he's writing a huge page of the 500 mile history here. Um, finally, a guy of our generations going in the in the four. In the four club and that's very special he's a great friend and um, he just gave me 10 more years in my career uh, to go catch him so thank you Elio I mean it's it's amazing this place I only have so much respect for this place I love the tension through the race and and how much you have to let the animal inside of you come out in the last 20 laps it's just such um, it's a feel that I've never had on any other racetracks um, that fight at the end, you know, being in it, even though I was third, I could smell the blood. And and I tell you what, it is, it's the best feeling in racing. You know, obviously I want to win and, and it hurts to be third. And maybe one more lap, I would have had a shot at Elio, who knows, uh, but it's only 500 miles. Uh, we should have done it earlier. But, you know, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Um, and I'm proud, I'm proud of my team, proud of myself. I'm proud for John Minard as well, and again, a great showing at the 500. And like you said, it, it's amazing to have one come back, and every year you guys know we are a threat, and, and that's what it's all about for me. It's, uh, it's about, you know, always always being scratching at victory, uh, and, um, you know, it's, this place is just amazing. It's just nothing, there's nothing else like it. And Rookie of the Year for this year's Indy 500 went to Scott McLaughlin, the only rookie to do a full season this year we showed we've showed some there's twice now we've showed some pretty good pace on ovals and we've got one more oval left at gateway um so really excited to get back on an oval um i'm gonna have my work cut out out for me a little bit at detroit i think detroit i think i've got to learn um you know a track in one practice session qualifying race so it's gonna be tough and a double header as well so you know but but back my team to give me a great car and and back my ability to go well obviously so um but yeah look i'm just our goal this year has been literally finish every lap we can in every race, and, and we're doing that. We're ticking boxes, and doing two, 200 laps around here is a, is a tough gig, and mentally it's very hard, and, and um, you know, I'm stoked to do it. So, um, you know, I'll take, like I said, I'll take this experience. I'll move forward with it for the rest of the season, but certainly knowing what to expect, and I know it's going to be even bigger next year for the 500. You know, I'm really excited for it. I think you just got to look at my pace, you know, towards the end of that run. Like, I was right there with those guys. Um, so I know if we were in contention, I still think we could have been okay. I don't think we had quite had the pace to, you know, be where Alio and Palou were. But um, you know, I think a, a good solid top five probably was begging. Um, but you know, like I said, I'll learn from this. I'll turn the negative into a positive at one point. You know, I'm a long time in the sport, hopefully. So Scott McLaughlin there finishing up our. Uh, Indy 500 press conference uh, audio. Well done to Tim for that. 
Uh, joining us to discuss what was a cracking race, our North American correspondent, Shea Adam. Hello, Shea. Hello. Um, let's start at the front of the field. Sports car team wins Indy 500, shocker. <laughs> yeah, and what a performance from Meyer Shank Racing. Got to hand it to those guys. When they run two cars, one car seems to always be at the front of the pack, whether it's winning championships or being right up there in the fight. That seems to be MSR's uh, modus operandi. But what a debut for Elio with that team that he came in. The team has done 39 previous IndyCar races with Jack Harvey. They've got one podium finish out of that. Elio comes in and they win not only the biggest race, of the IndyCar year, but arguably the biggest race in North America. And they do it in style. It was, uh, I, I think we were all wearing a little bit of pink and cheering for MSR at the end of that one. Uh, right at the end of the race, for me, and I watched the whole thing, and I, I actually really enjoyed it. I had timing up. I was watching the pit stop cycles. And I, I'll, I'll go back to some other things in a moment. But right at the end of the race... The way Elio managed oh. as he was catching the traffic, which could have actually been a problem. That That is all through the race. We had this lovely balance. We talked about it in our preview, didn't we? Of, yeah. of um, experience versus youth. That yep. was a veteran move from an experienced driver. He didn't let himself get caught up in the traffic. And the way he managed yeah. that for me was absolutely superb. Yeah, I completely agree. And I I watched the first 30 laps of the race and then went on an adventure and came back without any spoilers, didn't know what had happened, put it on the DVR and sat down with a group of friends to watch. And at the end of the race, as there were about 20 laps to go and Palu was leading, he got around Elio. And one of the people I was watching with said, he's playing with He's toying with him. Kelio, Elio is cat yeah. and mousing Palu. And that's exactly what he was doing. He, he was gently taking a swipe at him to see how he would respond and then backing off and letting Palu think he was safe and then making the pass and then letting Palu go back by again. It was veteran. He knew exactly what to do because, remember, Elio has won this race four times, but more importantly, he's finished second three times. He's been the person who's been passed at the end of the race. So he knew how to make that not happen. We talked in the preview about Ed Carpenter Racing being right up there with the big boys mm. um, and all the big names. And you've got to say the same now for Michael Shank Racing. And great to hear um, Maya and Shank saying we <laughs> want to give um, the, the M and the S of MSR uh, we want to give Elio a chance to go for five. The drive for yeah. five starts right now. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. It is, it's everything that they've wanted for both of them, as you could hear. I mean, Jim Mayer saying that he has spent 41 consecutive years coming to the Indy 500, and he wants to keep that going. And Michael Shank has never made any secret that his dream in life was to win that race. And I don't know if you saw the picture that was going around on social media of him with every body limb extended as fully as it could be <laughs> out on the pit wall. You could feel the energy from him. But for them, this is this is a breakthrough. It's not the end of something. It, it's not reaching a goal. It's realizing that a goal is attainable. 
I don't know that one win proves that they are worth being mentioned in the same. And and to be fair, Ed Carpenter's team has not won the Indy 500. They've uh, Connor Daly this year led the most laps. And yeah. how about that for the Indiana hometown hero to do and that? Did you hear the crowd? Oh, it was mega. The the cheer like that. I, I haven't heard anything like that since Canon came through and mm. won the race back in 13th. Um, but they've won one race. They've won the biggest race, but they've won one race. Whereas you look at a team like Chip Ganassi or Andretti or Penske, they've won every race, uh, including Indy 500 and championships. I think this is where the MSR story takes the next step into them becoming a potential powerhouse team. They've now laid the groundwork. They've proved that they can do it. So now they need to back it up. Um, I loved seeing the first people, literally the first people, to congratulate Elio. And by the way, some of the best bits of the whole TV broadcast were those five or six or seven or ten or fifteen minutes, and it doesn't matter how long it was, after the end of the race where they stayed with the celebrations on the front stretch. I thought that was outstanding. Now, that was made possible by the fact that it was the shortest Indy 500 ever in terms of time because there were so few yellow flags laps. Um, nevertheless, it, that worked really, really well. But some of the best, the, the first people to go and congratulate Elio were his, his former teammates. I loved, I think it was Ryan yeah. Hunter Ray saying, Have you won? Have you won? I looked up on the top of the scoring tower and saw 0 6 and thought, Who's that? Because yeah. we didn't recognise the number. Tim Sindrick went down to say hello. Some of his other former teammates. And, and that was lovely. And exactly what you'd expect. Because he's such a popular character. Um, allegedly, um, a lot of people took issue with this. Uh, put out the pasture by Roger Penske oh. and the organisation a couple of seasons ago. Well, he did all right when he was out the pasture, didn't he? Yes, and this is a very valid thing that you bring up. It was Paul Tracy who said that Elio former Penske was, driver, of course. Yes, former Penske driver. That Elio Castroneves was put out to pasture. He didn't want to go drive the sports car thing, but that's where he was placed. And uh, he always wanted to be an Indy car. He wasn't very happy. Well, put out to pasture. You're given one of the elusive seats in a factory. DPI ride, you go on and win six races, five races over the course of three years, including a championship. You come out and you win your sixth IMSA race this year, which is, oh, by the way, the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona. Elio's done two races this year and he's won them both. So he is hardly put out to pasture. And he smiled more in our paddock, John, than I've seen him up until winning the Indy 500 for the fourth time. And becomes the only driver ever to win outright, not a class win, an overall victory in the Rolex 24 and the Indy 500 in the same year. I I loved the audio that uh, Tim pulled out there from Alex Palau. Oh, could he just have not given me one? Did he really need a fourth? (laughs) We're going to be talking about Alex Palau for for quite a a while. just reinforcing the experience versus use thing. Pagano, Simon Pagano, the silent assassin, uh, assassin up in third yeah. position as well. I loved his quote. Brilliant from yeah. him and well picked up by Tim. 
Oh, Elio's just given me 10 more years of my career. Those two we're going to be talking about for a, for a long time yet. Yes, for sure. And looking beyond this race at the championship picture, Alex Palou comes out of it with the lead. He has 36 points over Scott Dixon. And, okay, we're going to Belle Isle. Scott Dixon has won there more times than I can count. Palou's never raced there. And it is a difficult place, as Scotty McLaughlin rightly said. You've got one practice session to learn it before you go out and, and qualify and then race twice. So it can be a good weekend or it can't be. But Scott Dixon, with a massive comeback drive throughout mm. the course of that race, Absolutely. both he and Alex Rossi, with that fuel pickup issue on their first pit stop, Rossi never got his lap back. Dixon finished 17th. He did a 40, I think he did a 46 or 47 lap run when everybody oh. else was doing 33s, tops, 33s or 34s. Now, you know, his lap times weren't there. But that was Dixie um, getting what he could out of that. We heard also from uh, Scotty Max, Scotty McLaughlin, uh, in that the rookie of the year. Could have been so much better for him. Uh, one yeah. of a number of drivers who had problems coming into the pit lane, notably oh. Stefan Wilson, of course, who uh, now thinks it might have been a brake master cylinder problem that put him into the wall. Um, Scotty Max said there he didn't think he had the, the, the outright pace, uh, but my goodness, he, he, was solid. He, would, he would have been a solid top 10 finisher, possibly better than that. For sure. And he still sits high up in the championship. He's still in the top 10, uh, almost a hundred and well, 105 points back off of Palou going into the, the next swing of things. But he's actually at Road America right now. One of a few drivers testing there for the first time in their career, including oh. such drivers as Jimmy Johnson and Roman Grosjean. So hope you boys are having fun today. But yeah, that brake thing. Very curious that it came up on both the Chevys and the Hondas. Steph Wilson Will power uh, Simona Di Silvestro, Scotty coming into the pits when he locked him up. Hunter Ray had the exact same thing happen. Yeah, yeah. It was very curious, an issue in the rear brakes. And it, just one of those things that it, do, it doesn't even matter how good of car control you have at that speed and at that narrow an opening. Some people hit the wall, other people spun and got lucky. You need a bit of luck sometimes, don't you, at these big races. Yeah. I suspect we'll be talking about that again when we talk about the Nürburgring 24 in hour two tonight. Uh, unlucky with a great chance and very oh. much flying under the ra- radar. Rahal Letterman Lanigan's um, United Rentals car, Graham Rahal, did a great, great first stint. Uh, saved, oh. saved fuel, was going to come out in the top six and literally the wheels came off. That was, yeah. that was so unlucky from Graham. He had a great car and they put him in a good position. Really did the reaction of Graham when he climbed out of the car, went over to the wall, and then realized that his race was over. When he fell to his knees, you could feel the anguish coming through the television, and people all around the world were experiencing the same sadness mm. that Graham was going through. You didn't need the interview aftermath <laughs> no. to know how he felt, and. At the end of the day, he went back home to his wife and his daughter, and, and that's the most important thing. But this is Damn a race right. that for a very long time, Graham Rahal was going to think, yep, that could have been mine. That's the one that got away. That's, yep. You're going you're gonna to look at that for a very long time. Ian McCarthy says, that, if anything, I think the cars look better with the aero screens, more race car than Halo. 
A couple of people have been saying that as well. Uh, Jesse saying, track celebration for Melio was awesome. How about teaching drivers not to lock up when entering pits? I don't think they all... Um, it was all their own making, to, to be honest. Jesse, the great Gonzo saying, I'm an hour away from Simon Pagino's hometown, Montmarillon. Ask anyone <laughs> on Monday what happened Sunday night? I bet you they wouldn't have a clue about... Oh. Um, uh, about one of their uh, own. Uh, a little bit of a break coming for IndyCar now, Shay, unusually so. Yeah, um, there have been articles written about uh, how nice it was to have F1, to have Monaco and Indy on separate weekends. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. Really? I like waking up in the morning, getting my <laughs> coffee, sitting down and watching Monaco, and then flipping over to the IndyCar pre-race. Like, that's just my sort of thing. But, yeah, Belle Isle was supposed to be this weekend for IMSA. Uh, scheduling changes ultimately resulted in that moving a week, so we still have a week away, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more IMSA later on. But uh, We'll do it next it is, week. I think we'll do it next uh, week. Yeah. Okay, but uh, for the Detroit Grand Prix, it is now a full week away, 10 days, yeah. as a matter of fact, for race number one. So IndyCar with a week off after the race. But here's the thing that, that settles in. They get into a little bit of a rhythm. The following week, they're at Road America. Then two weeks later, they're at Mid-Ohio, and then they get their summer break. So it is still a fairly fast-paced schedule, but this unexpected week off, it's kind of like, well, what, what should we do? Should we go on vacation? Should we <laughs> mow the lawn? Should we find out if our house is still standing? Go test. That's what they have yeah, to do. That's what they're doing. Uh, just a final thought. Biggest sporting crowd of the year and highest TV audience for sports so far uh, this year with 140 thousand i've got to say it looked more than that on on yeah. tv um but it is a big place so you know uh, but even That's so true. the place looked fantastic it well, is disney it is disney world for race fans um it always <laughs> looks good on race days but the captain did a a, a cracking job you're in the states here how did it play in in the states to have that kind of coverage that kind of fan involvement on one of america's big sporting event weekends um insularly from our community it was massive but as far as on an external stage mm. i saw something briefly on the news about elio winning other than that it wasn't that big um i i did hear of quite a few people and this is actually funny commenting that the guy who won dancing, dancing with, the stars with the stars yeah absolutely. won another indie um yeah. so there was that but it is still interesting that the highest rated um, TV audience for, for the sport, the majority of the people who were watching were in Indianapolis because they hit their mark for how many people they oh, needed yes, they to took sell the tickets out to. Elf, didn't they? Yeah. Exactly. So that meant that eight, pretty much everybody and their cat in Indianapolis was watching the race, hmm. uh, which did turn out fairly well. Shit. Um, oh, but I was going to say, the reason that it possibly looked more crowded than it, we we normally would associate it, there were no fans, at least as far as I could tell, on in the, the infield. infield. Yeah. There was no snake pit, and no, there was correct. no person no. allowed on the green berm uh, on the correct. inside of turn four, and that's normally packed. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Shay, thanks for that. Uh, best to your mum and dad and everybody over there in the States. We'll talk next week when we'll be building up to the next round uh, of IMSA. Thank you, Shay. 
Might take me a while, but I'll get on saying my best to everybody in the States. (laughs) You do that. Everybody. Every single person. Thank you, Cher. Cher Adam joining us live from Utah this evening on Midweek Motorsport. It's Series 16, Episode 22. Dancing with the Stars. Uh, Winner wins Indy for a sports car team, Nick. There's There's a headline for you. Good evening, Mr. Dearman. Hello, John. Hello, Tim. Hello, everyone. How are we all? Yes, it's good to know a man with rhythm can also go left or not. <laughs> left, 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 left. Yeah, round in circles. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Nick, yeah, he's pirouetting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Nick Damon joins us now. Uh, we'll talk about Formula One, which is back this weekend in Azerbaijan, in Baku, of course. But we'll start this off with some very... Sad, not to say tragic news about the death at the weekend of 19-year-old Jason DePasquier, Moto3 rider who succumbed to injuries sustained after a qualifying crash uh, right at the end of qualifying on Saturday uh, in Moto uh, GP uh, um, the weekend in Italy at Mugello. Uh, it was a horrible accident. It's uh, a high side that turned into so much more. High side looked horrible, but frankly, we've seen people walk away from much worse. Uh, Ayuma Sasaki and Jeremy Alcoba also involved. It was right at the end of the session, which was red flagged. And despite the best efforts of the circuit medical team who worked on Jason on the track for quite some time, before they transferred him by helicopter to Firenze, to, to Florence. Um, he was very badly injured to his head, chest and legs and died from those injuries on Sunday. Tenth in the championship, second season in GP. Um, his team pulled out on Sunday. You understand that, Nick, absolutely. Uh, as did Ayuma Sasaki and Tom Lutey, another Swiss rider who went straight to the hospital to to help liaise with with Jason's family, which I thought was a really uh, nice touch. Uh, I I mean, what do you say? Uh, It puts a massive dampener, of course, on the weekend, on a weekend at a circuit that we all love, that the riders all love. A a fairly, nowadays, innocuous accident that had tragic and deadly consequences. Yeah, there's nothing much you can say. I mean, you know, we, when we get to these situations, we will refer to the ticket stubs. The motor racing is dangerous. And however, you legislate for safety, and that may be making the tracks less risky, that may be making you know, uh, airbag suits. There is always a combination of angles and speeds and other vehicles hitting that can cause fatality. It's just very, very sad when it happens. But you know, those are unfortunately still the risks of motorsport. If I'm going to talk, I need to fit my mic up. Uh, IndyCar got almost five minutes of coverage on ESPN Sunday night, says Carol Brink uh, on at Specutainment. Um Just going back to our previous uh, conversation. Um, I, I don't know what you do. I mean, it's the second or third incident we've seen with riders going down just over the top of a brow. I was watching it live, and when he went down, I'll be honest, I think probably everybody didn't think it was a bad accident uh, even though he was thrown up high in the air but I was really panicking against he got badly picked up by another rider because they were unsighted um, Sark, Sasaki looked like he hit the bike rather than the rider but uh, I mean it's just horrible 
horrible. Um, we'll, we'll talk about World Superbike as well, but fabulous ride by Agata, another Swiss, Swiss driver or uh, rider on uh, on Sunday in, in Supersport, dedicated the victory. Interesting and I think understandable decision by Erta and Dorna not to tell the Moto GP riders, the Moto Three riders, excuse me, on Sunday morning that Jason had died until after the race, although it yeah. was announced beforehand. It was a little bit disquieting and discomforting that the top three were interviewed without knowing that and were passing on their best wishes when all the audience knew that he'd already died. But do, I, I think that was the right the right decision, don't you? Well, I don't think you want to have, you know, that massive field of, 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 of young people in always riding in incredibly close and, uh, and hairy combinations down the, to have their minds clouded when they need mental clarity. Um, so finding out beforehand would naturally affect some more than others and, you know, it's going to put some off their game, which in itself is dangerous. So I understand it. Um, you could say, well, do you actually just pull the entire race? Is a, is a, is a different answer to the same question, of course. Um, See, yeah. I don't think that. I never think that. I've, I've talked... Some of us are... There, there is a whole generation of people... Dex and I were talking about this earlier on today. There's a whole generation of people who race and who cover races who aren't used to motor racing um, and, and bike riding being as dangerous as it was when we came up and therefore have different attitudes towards yes. it. Um, I have, have been working at a number of places where people have been killed. Uh, the last one for me was, uh, uh, would have been Le Mans, of course, and Alan Simonson. <laughs> um, and talking to Alan's family... Uh, and the guys at Aston Martin, the last thing they wanted was the race to be stopped. The the attitude very much would be to race on in honour and in memory of those who lost their lives doing what they wanted to do. I know racing drivers, and God, can you imagine having to have this conversation? I know racing drivers who have had the conversation with their wives that says listen, if it all goes horribly, you know what up, then tell the team, don't stop racing. Don't pull the car. Keep on racing. Because I would, you know, I never want that to be associated with me. And it's an interesting discussion, isn't it, about that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it goes both ways. I think there is a sanitisation of, of, of many things, and this is probably isn't a, a conversation for you know the news part of Mimic Motorsport. But there is a there are the attitude to death overall has changed dramatically in the last twenty five years, and that is reflected in in everything, not just how motorsport. Um, as far as what happened on the track at the weekend, MotoGP, uh, another great ride by uh, Scott Redding. Uh, That's not GP. Oh, sorry. Um, that was uh, World Superbike. Let's get to that in a moment. Let's talk about Moto GP. Um, Quattararo looked good. I actually enjoyed the Moto GP race, despite the fact that I have to be honest, I was knocked uh, after the news of, of, of Jason DePasquier's uh, death on, on Sunday morning, but I still wanted to watch it. Um, I love watching bikes around Mugello. I'd, I'd watch shopping trolleys around Mugello, but not Formula One. That still scares me. 
uh, round round there. And, and actually, Mortal 2 and Mortal GP turned in pretty good races. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a great weekend for Fabio Quattararo. It was, you know, a, another difficult learning process for Mark Marquez over the weekend. He's, he's suffering from... He's not up to speed. The bike's not up to speed. You know, he is sort of out the pace or slightly better than Paul Esperago, of course, who is the other proper rider on that bike. But, of course, Paul's new to the bike as well. So it's mm. they're in a bit of a, a downward spiral, which, which is really going to take a, a, a winter break to solve. And then uh, Mark got too eager and, uh, and, and punted himself, obviously, said earlier in the race. Um, I suppose, really, I, I think what we need to do for this weekend's uh, Grand Prix, uh, John, we, we need to start a sweepstake in what lap will Alex Rins crash? No, that's awful. Uh, Johan Meyer had a better weekend, the defending world champion on Suzuki. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, um, and by the way, when, when people talk... Go on. Sorry, I was cutting across thing because the key thing, of course, was the resurgence of KTM. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Go on. Down down to a new frame and new fuel. They wouldn't say which one was which, but it also apparently it's because the uh, Michelin dropped the asymmetric front tyre and just gave them a harder front tyre. Yes. And, and so that, they uh, had three things that's pointed up. Though it's noticeable the satellite team didn't get the frame or the fuel and they were 20 seconds slow with Didier Pratitia and Ike Lacona and then Brad Binder and um, Miguel Oliveira. So it's a combination of three things, but it was a massive return to form. Yeah, and that asymmetric front end means front tyre. It means that there isn't um, such a big change between the edges of the tyre and the middle of the tyre and the, and both edges not necessarily the same rubber either uh, on those and it, it's in... I, I always think they're too clever for their own good but that's well, not professional rider listen I, I've, <laughs> I've ridden I've ridden road bikes with tyres that have oh, different so, compounds yeah, so I, yeah. I mean, and you do listen even tires. and I ha- you know how much feel how little feel I have on a motorbike particularly you know since I've had the bike I ride now which is you know, 300 kilos of motorbike and more. And that's before you put me on it. That's another 100 kilos. But but even with that, the transition between the different areas of the tyre, my God, if I could feel it on that, on my uh, BMW GT 1600, 600 GT, then on a, on a bike with a ridiculous amount of horsepower that weighs a third of that and a rider that weighs half my weight, they'll absolutely feel it. They will absolutely uh, feel it. Uh, anyway, Quattararo does his job, does a great job uh, at that uh, as well. Um, 11 seconds difference uh, between the race-winning times at Mugello over eight years. Um up until this weekend, Fabio Quattararo went 15 seconds quicker than the last time they raced there. That will tell you how things have moved on and how good well, yes. Quattararo is. By but, the way, but, you know, uh, uh, arm pub surgery, which Quattararo has had, when anybody says, and I've heard motorcyclists say, oh, it's not that bad, including mm-hmm. you know um, experts, there is another rider on the grid at the weekend who was taking a Coke can sized, um, a Coke can full of liquid out of his arm, out of a drain where he had had that surgery at the same time at Quattararo had. Yeah, so, it, you know. Um, you have to t- arm pump is actually what you what they actually do is they cut the sheath that holds the muscle oh, in to allow the muscle to expand because actually it's the sheath that's constraining the muscle which is what causes the blood 
to be uh, stopped. So it's a pretty major bit of cut and slash, to be honest. And so, yeah, you need to... Uh, but no, I mean, it's 25 points to leave for Quattro now, or 21 points, and he's looking particularly good because of what's happening is no one is coming to provide a constant challenge. So yeah. that's what that's why it's looking particularly good because because obviously the only down race he's really had was when he had the arm pump. Yeah. Um, and he would be another twenty two, twenty four points further oh, ahead without that. So absolutely yeah, right. it's really it is. I know it's oh, I say that it is his to lose again. So it's down oh, to keeping his head together. And he should be fine because the bike is great. I think the race it, bike is, as a race bike, it's great. I think his head looks better this year and oh, his yeah. attitude yeah. looks better this year. At World Superbike, I, I, I mentioned it. Oh, obviously, great. Super Sports, um, as we said, Swiss rider Agatha Rudy's, you know, what's off in the second race after the horrible news about De Pasquier, his countryman, and rode to a fantastic victory, not a dry eye in the house as far as the big class was concerned. Scott Redding uh, continues to impress, but then again, yeah, so but, does Johnny no. Rear. But no, what happened? But, but at the end of the weekend, Johnny's massively ahead because yeah. Scott threw it down the road needlessly. Yeah. Um, when he could have had worse, he was going to come second. I mean, the, the pro- he's is trying he, though. Really, well, that's it. Johnny Johnny Ray is, I think, I can't, I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't pulled the page up, but he's he's thirty something points ahead already, and that's just from not making mistakes because Scott really made his had a, yeah made his first mistake. Um, of the of the six races and he lost it and lost a certain 20 points possibly 25 and throughout the course of the first six races top rack who looks marvelously quick on the yamaha has kept making who, who, who's that mistake. top rack Raz, tak, ak, uh, anyway, top Raz rack. i can't do the car i have to have the name in front of me I you can, have I can, to take uh, a slow run can, up to it rasgadlioglu exactly he's, he's absolutely a spinner isn't he you're going to come up and then just chop it through um but no, and they, and he's made mistakes as well. That, he the jump start penalty cost him points. He's made mistakes. And he got and a good he, finish consider, considering he yeah. did two long laps. And frankly, I know it's an absolute penalty, but he started and stopped. He should have just nailed it. If you're going to go, no, no, he'd have been five seconds up the road. He'd have come out, even with his two long lap penalties, he would have come out in about third. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, sadly, I think, well, oh, yeah, I think you're probably right. But yeah, but, but it's, it's very, very close racing. But, you know, there's kind of an inevitability about Johnny Ray's metronomic ability to just get the best out of things. And if it's not there, like in race one, I'll take the third. Yeah. And it's and, and yeah. you never think he's about to lob it down the road. And don't forget, Esteril was an absolute nightmare for him last year. It was mm. last race, you were in the championship. A nightmare time. This time, he's won two more races again and got by far the most points of any of the riders. Um, yeah, who'd have thought though, it, has, a, race, a race in Portugal that wasn't the Portimao? I know. Oh, Esteril's, a, Esteril's a good bike I love, sir, I love Esteril. I love everything track. about um, Esteril. And, yeah, and it's good to see, uh, it is good to see that um, BMW continue to go forward yeah. and someone needs to point out to Garrett Gerloff that Mario Andretti uh, to finish first you must first first you must finish but also please stop hitting everybody else when you're having these accidents yeah good point uh, he's got the pace there's no he's doubt quick. about that he's quick we'll have a quick chat about Formula 1 which is back this weekend in a moment with Nick but first here's Tim Graham executive producer who's been very quiet, uh, sweating, I'm sure, from doing all the editing of the 500 uh, press conference, which went on uh, very late. And Tim has some programme news for later tonight, Tim. What do you got? Because after us tonight, it's the June episode of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. And tonight, Jim Roller reviews the Amelia Island Concourse, talking to event founder Bill Warner, Lynn St. James, 
and Kevin Jeanette. Joe Bradley looks back at the Donington Historic Festival uh, with motor racing legend boss Duncan Wiltshire. And Paul Jurd finds out about the trials and tribulations of getting race cars to Monaco in a post-Brexit world. Plus, their new feature, Corridors of Power, which is described mm. as a bit of opinionated waffle where each of the team pick their favourite <laughs> F1 livery of all time and Paul Tarsi has to pick an overall winner. That's Excellent racing news radio show at ten tonight. Downloaded to tomorrow. They're all having a row. Brilliant. Even, even now, uh, still having <laughs> a, a row. Uh, we've got uh, three or four minutes before yes. we go into half time. In the second half tonight, we'll be concentrating on the Nurburgring Twenty Four. Um, before that, we're at Azerbaijan. We're at Baku on the streets of Baku, where the streets actually do have names um what are we expecting this weekend where are we expecting more controversy about bendy wings or will we actually be talking about racing uh, no 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 uh, we'll be talking about bendy wings because um they'll get the cars out on the first practice and they'll stick the uh, rear view cameras and they'll be trying to see if they bend or not and that'll obviously depend whether red bull put their bendier version on because they've got two versions of the wing one is uh, less but the, the thing about the bendy winger this is the one track of the year where it's gonna make the most difference um it is the absolute best track for a bendy wing because you've got a very tight section which is slow where you need the downforce and then you've got a big the longest straight of the season where if it bends back and, and drops off the drag it's a big advantage there is no track where it's more advantageous Nick, than here because yep uh, is there I noticed, and a couple of people have picked this up, including Mark Hughes at, at Motorsport News magazine, um, that there is a suggestion from some of the other teams, notably Total Wolf, um, that even though the new regulations aren't coming in until further down the line, that it could put results before that into question because you could appeal those results if people were seen to be using things that were then subsequently found to be illegal. I mean, is that just talk? Is it threat? Or what, what's going on with that? Well, what's going on with that is, is political brinkmanship. The fact is that the Red Bull cars have not, are not illegal. They passed all the tests. Therefore, you know, they weren't doing anything illegal. Now, Obviously, we have a precedent set about people who hadn't officially done anything illegal but got severely punished uh, in Ferrari with their <laughs> engine um, two years ago. But this Uh-oh. is very different. This is this is effectively just you know maximising the rules, which, which is team what teams do. Um, and I personally think that you know it, it's a chance Blown for Toto diffuses, to mass dampers, yeah, uh, etc. Yeah, it's a, I haven't got I really haven't got a problem with. It. I also have got no problem with the FIA banning it. It's just upset. Um, a couple of people that, um, you know, because of the way the, the calendar's fallen, the, the, the track where it's going to have the most advantage, they're still allowed. Well, you know, yeah. that's that's life. But, yeah, there's going to be a lot of talk. There's going to be a lot of minging. Um, the interesting thing is, though, of course, that what, 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 as somebody pointed out, what would, what would have actually would have happened in Alden and in the good days, by the way, uh, is that Mercedes spent the last three weeks building themselves a Baku wing. Um yeah, with the with the carbon fibre laid up in the correct way. Can't do but that now. Haven't got the money. <laughs> and will that affect Red Bull then if they have to change with no, the resource I, agreement? Well, no. I mean, what will happen is they have they have got compliant wings, and and it's ah. a case they'll just have to build. All they all they'll need to do is build is, is use a couple of different side plates, 
or a different support. And anyway, right. the ones they, they were using, they could use the same design, same, but it won't bend as much. Well, it might want to, but it's no, it doesn't. They have said there's a huge price attached to it. I don't think there is. I think you'll just show it. You're just chucking a couple of bits of one in the bin because you can still use the main elements. Oh, I, lo- I love the way you describe this. Tim Gray up in London has a, a final point on this. Uh, not on this. I've got uh, a very other or some other very brief Formula One stories. Uh, and just two days after Lando Norris said he'd rather race at Le Mans than uh, do the Indy 500, McLaren have said they're definitely not going sports car racing in 2023. Well, he wasn't going to do either because they all clash and, and this, uh, doing doing multiple uh, things in the same year is very, very difficult. Yeah. However, we'll have some, some McLaren Who, sports car news in the second hour. Who does uh, Jacques Villeneuve think should not retire? <laughs> Jimmy Raikkonen? No. Total Wolf? No. Uh, Lewis Hamilton? No. Uh, Jack Villeneuve? Who else uh, is retiring? Vettel. I don't think he was going to retire. I don't think he's going to retire he's either. But uh, there was, he was actually half decent last time, man. Villeneuve is against no, no, it, no, like a lot of things, first three races, not so sure. Last two races, and certainly the last race, much better. Let's see who turns up this weekend. Uh, what's going to get 100,000 fans a day, according to Jan Lammers? The Dutch Grand Prix. Yep. And, in uh, Zandvoort, if in they're allowed Zandvoort, to, obviously. Yes. And there. finally, uh, what can you tell me about Yuan Puku? He is a young Chinese carter who has been signed by Mercedes. That's right. Uh, what in the, in the vein of Lewis Hamilton? Well, I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't think, think he's down to jobs Chinese, in, the, to in the slums of Stevenage, but uh, right. But I mean, same sort of age. What is he? No, Lewis was 11, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, 11 or 12. Yeah. Yeah. But no, well, there's, there's quite a lot of 13. a lot of people do join these. Um, yeah, the young driver programs before they've raced a car with us doing karting. That's quite common. I think. I think it's more the point they've signed a Chinese carter. Kart? Yes, yeah, kart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Still to come on Midweek Motorsport. And is there any chance you could bring some dessert to the VO booth, please? No chance at all uh, of the VO booth dessert uh, question there, uh, as we're having eaten mess, if I can squeeze some in, in the next hour, where we have another packed 60 minutes or just under, as we'll be talking ELMS. They're back at the weekend at Paul Ricard. And we're going to be N24 heavy if all of the technology stands up. Bruce Jones is joining our team at the weekend. It's been a while since he's been at the Nürburgring. We'll have a preview with him and a couple of drivers as well. Philippe Eng and Adam Christodoulou joining us. But next, it's our big interview. N24, yeah, we'll be talking about that. WEC, yeah, tick that one off. It's Jim Glickenhouse, our big interview. Next on Midweek Motorsport Series 16, Episode 22, here on RS1. Midweek Motorsport on RS1. And we're just after nine o'clock in the UK, which means it's time for the big interview. And joining us now from the Nürburgring, preparations well in hand for this weekend's Nürburgring 24-hour race. Delighted to say that joining us is Jim Glickenhaus. Hello, Jim. Are you ready to go for the weekend then? Yes, we're uh, very excited. You know, we've made huge changes to uh, 004. 
we uh, dropped the engine down uh, forward two inches and down an inch. We put on a massively larger rear wing because we sold so many road examples that were on the cusp of being homologated as a full GT3, which is very exciting. Uh, last year at the ring, the issue we had was we had terrific rear downforce, but in the front, uh, we were deficient, so we had a lot of understeer. So by moving the engine forward and down and by uh, putting much more aero on the front of the car in terms of canards, and we also redid the splitter so that it uh, curves up and is like a secondary canard, we now have a lot more um, front downforce, so the car is much more balanced. And uh, the final part of the puzzle will will be the uh, BOP on the um, engine. We're going to dyno, and we're going to work with them to get a fair and final BOP. So uh, we're very excited about that, and uh, we think we have a good chance. Now, as you know, it's going to be rain for four days, so it's going to be a pretty wet race, and uh, Michelin has a spectacular rain tire. We actually moved to become a Michelin team because a couple of years ago we were in first place at the ring, and then um, the rains came, and we were 20 seconds a lap slower on our Dunlops, which became Goodyear's, I guess. So we're very happy with Michelin, and they are, of course, also doing our hypercar tires so we're excited about that good to see some continuity uh, in terms of who's behind the wheel uh felipe fernandez Leza, uh frank Meyer, thomas Mo- and richard westbrook as well well actually yeah. he's pretty handy in the rain so he could be another secret weapon yes exactly and richard and frank are also uh, part of our hypercar program so they will be um uh, driving uh, one of our two hypercars. And we are going to do a um, demo lap of the hypercar on Saturday at 2 p.m. Uh, before the start of the race. And I think BMW is also doing a special demo lap with um, one of Sabine's uh, winning cars. So that'll be pretty emotional. And uh, we'll have the hypercar here and be doing that. So we're excited about that. And then that hypercar will go back to our factory in Italy to be totally rebuilt for Monza, where we'll show up with two cars. And then I'm off to Portimao, as you know, to race um, the one car uh, that is was our homologation car. And is uh, we shook down in Aragon last week, but it's pristine and ready to race. You're not making life easy for yourself uh, and for for all the team in uh, beefing up the uh, or, or four for this weekend while simultaneously developing the hypercar as well. Logistically, has has that worked for you? Has it been tense? How's that worked? Well, it's it's very complicated because we're also at the same time. Um, completely redoing our Baja program. We are um, really doing a lot of work on our uh, Baja boot, our Class 2 truck. We're taking 400 pounds out of it. We're adding 200 horsepower to it. And we've lengthened the wheelbase so that it will fit in the period of the whoops that the trophy trucks make. So we think we'll be substantially faster 
uh, at the Baja also. And in addition, you know, we are um, on the cusp of working with some very major automotive manufacturers on a hydrogen fuel cell uh, pickup truck that will be a prototype for a pickup truck. It will be very long range, 600 mile range. It will be easily refuelable with liquid hydrogen, which you could get from um, any welding gas supplier or they could come to you and refuel. And the cost is very effective. <clears throat> liquid hydrogen delivered directly to you is about a buck fifty a gallon gasoline equivalent. And uh, so we're doing a lot of things. We're pretty busy. Uh, I, I know you've got your mind on Nürburgring for, for this weekend, but I, I must uh, I must have a quick word with you about Hypercar. Um, congratulations. Uh, I, I love the way you've gone about this. And the, the reason that we haven't seen the car until Portimao in uh, a couple of weekends time is because you were you were tussling with the idea of top speed versus downforce and and drivability are you going to let us into the secret then Jim which one won out in the end before you homologated before you tied yourself in to the final spec very sensibly you wanted to know all the data where have the chips fallen then? Is it is it the red of top speed or the black of of extra downforce and, and drivability through the corners? Well, you know, the main thing about Le Mans Hypercar, as you know, is that it is a five-year program. So once you build your car and you're homologated for five years, uh, you really can't change it. So it's very important to get it right because you're locked into that. The second thing is you have to really decide how the tires are going to be because at Le Mans, as you know, you you can't fuel and change the tires at the same time so that if you stop for fuel, your pit stop is, uh, let's say, 30 seconds. But if you stop for fuel and tires, it's more like 40 seconds. And that's a big number to have to make up. So you have to go two stints. But, you know, Michelin did not have the ability to work with us uh, because the car didn't exist yet. So Michelin was designing tires for us. And remember, we're the only one that is um, two-wheel drive and is using that size tire. So it's a whole brand new thing for Michelin. And they did a very good job, but... The one thing that we learned in Portimao is there's still work to be done on the second stint, that the fallout and the degradation is um, still more than we would like. So this becomes, you know, very important in terms of trying to figure out uh, what the separation is going to be between Le Mans hypercar mm. And the LMP2s. Now, as you know, Toyota uh, issued a very strong statement saying that they don't think that Le Mans hypercars and LMP2 should be, quote, in the same ballpark. And, you know, if you think about it, the the Le Mans hypercar program uh, involves Toyota, it involves us, it uh, potentially involves Ferrari, it, it potentially involves Peugeot, um, 
then you move to convergence where you could have Porsche, Audi, Acura, um, perhaps BMW might join, maybe General Motors. So you could have a situation by 2023 where you had the major manufacturers of the world racing each other in the top class at Le Mans, which would be spectacular. But the one thing that I think it's fair to say that if Ferrari feels they could be in a race where at Le Mans, where they're beaten by a P2, uh, I, I don't think they're going to build a car. You know, it's so there there has to be separation. Now, part of the problem is this. When Le Mans hypercar was conceived, you had a rule set. The rules went all over the place based on, oh, Aston Martin's going to come in. So they want to use their Valkyries. So you have to have a heavier car and more horsepower. Oh, guess what? They're not coming in. So it went back. And the problem is that enormous amounts of money were spent by Toyota and us bouncing around regulations that changed every 15 seconds. And we came up with a program where they said, we want you to build a car that um, that can run a, a 330 at Le Mans that will weigh this amount and uh, have this horsepower. And so we did. Now, you know, there's a lot of Internet experts who say, oh, make the hypercars faster. Well, well the problem is... You can't really make them lighter. You know, we've, we've built them and we've homologated them and we've crash tested them. And they meet a lot of regulations, including safety regulations, should they get sideways or, uh, you know, so that they don't lift off into the stratosphere and stuff like that. And um, I don't think, quite honestly, that either Toyota or us could take massive amounts of weight out of the car without spending a huge sum of money and taking a lot of time. So that's not going to happen. You were very clear right from the start. And you were the, let's not forget, you were the first manufacturer to commit to the the new regulations before they even existed, uh, actually. And you were working along the lines of you wanted to take a car to Le Mans and you wanted to make a car available to customers. Now, it's clearly gone way beyond that now because you're going to do some of the WEC, which means a car that works at Le Mans doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily optimum for some of the WEC tracks and vice versa. Your customers might want to race somewhere else. IMSA, let's say. How have all of those things come in to the car that we'll see at Portimao? And, and, and has that required compromise or just lateral thinking? Uh, well, certainly compromise and lateral thinking. And you're 100% right. I mean, we have clients who uh, are American-based, who would love to race the 24 Hours of Daytona, perhaps Lime Rock, which is a home track, Watkins Glen, Petit Le Mans, um, Sebring, of course, which is uh, part of both WEC and uh, IMSA. And they want to race Le Mans, and they, they may want to race a European race, but they don't necessarily want to race in Bahrain or Fuji. Um, so this is... This is the reality of it. So we have to build a car that can race at different places, frankly, has lower running costs, is very durable. I mean, we have 10,000 kilometers on our mule, so on the car we had at Aragon. So we feel we've accomplished that. But going 
you know, further, as you say, um, a car that could win Portimao is not necessarily a car that can win Le Mans because if you're forced to keep the same arrow, they're two quite different tracks. And um, you need a compromise of how much downforce you want versus how much VMAX you want. And I think that uh, the head of program, Luca Cinchetti, uh, did a fantastic job coming up with a car that will work well in a lot of places. And I think Pipo came up with a magnificent engine. It's the, it's the best sounding racing engine I've heard, frankly, in my life. It reminds me of a 67 Formula One engine with its flat crank twin turbo V8. Um, you may hear it from England. The thing was pretty loud. When we were <laughs> testing in Aragon, I heard it back in the hotel five miles away. <laughs> so That's what we want, loud. though. We, we want emotion. We, you and I have talked about emotion a, a, a lot, and I know how much your racing means to you, and it needs to be visceral, and it needs to be atmospheric. I have no issue with that, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners won't either. Let me quickly, because I know you're busy, let me quickly drag you back to, to this weekend then. In amongst all of those works teams, this is absolutely Skidderia, Cameron, Glickenhouse ground where you're taking on, on the big boys. Genuine chance for a victory? Are you going to go for Paul in the shootout? What do you think? And, and what would you consider to be a good job well done this weekend, Jim? Uh, I think this weekend we have a real chance to win this race. Um, you know, I don't know how uh, crazy we will be um, in the shootout. Uh, you know, we only have one car, so I'm not going to have the guys push to the point where they could lose the car and do something stupid. Um, and it's a long race. And in the rain, um, it's it's a very long race. <laughs> But um, we, we are going to try to win. We think we have a car that can win. And if we get a fair BOP on the um, uh, engine, which I think we will, uh, we're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, conversely, uh, in the WEC, uh, the car is very good. Uh, we know how fast it is because uh, we've benchmarked it now against two LMP2s. Um, we will be running uh, with Toyota. We're not going to be uh, ridiculously slow or anything like that. Um, I think the Alpine is going to have a problem with the fuel. I don't think it can fit enough fuel in itself to be competitive um, in a longer race. Um, but I do think that at Portimao on the second stint, we will be running uh, at the same speed of the... Um, P2s. And in the first stint, we will be slightly faster. I think at Monza, we will be faster than the P2s because uh, of the straights and stuff like that. And I think at Le Mans, we will also with the stint times. Yeah. But um, I do think that, you know, the WEC has to decide what they want in the future and how much pain they may have to take in the short run to, to make manufacturers believe that if they build a Le Mans hypercar or an IMSA version of it um, and that they are going to have be a clear victor. I mean, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. In 1960s, you know, 400,000 people went to Le Mans and they watched dream prototypes that still could be conceived of as being road cars 
not uh, fighter jets like the LMP1s became, sort of, you know, the Ferrari P3, 4, and the Fords and stuff like that. There was a second tier of prototypes, which were two liters, which were very cool looking and road car like, but they never, the, the odds of one of them winning against, you know, a Ford Mark IV were slim to none. However, having said that, they still look like road cars. And then there were the GT cars. So in my vision, I think that the, we should go back to dream prototypes, second-tier prototypes that are smaller, lighter, smaller engines, but in no way are going to challenge the top class. And I think that could be a platform for smaller manufacturers like you guys have in the U.K. Uh, to build cars and road legal versions of them and to race at Le Mans. And then, of course, GTs, which I personally think that GTE is over and that we're going to go to GT3 to save money and stuff. And I think that that could be a great future for it. But there's going to be some pain. They're going to have to slow down the LMP2s further than they have already. And if they don't, and if they're seconds apart... They really run the risk that, you know, guys like Ferrari are going to take a look at it and say, you know what, this is too close for comfort. Let's see what happens. Jim, thanks for being with us. Good luck for the weekend and looking further forward uh, to Portimao as well. Jim Glickenhouse, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. (laughs) Ciao, Jim. Jim Glickenhouse from the Nürburgring, I think walking out the Nürburgring and heading via car to one of the local restaurants uh, by the sound of that. Thank goodness the technology worked. Uh, Joining us for our coverage uh, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday will be Bruce Jones. Uh, Bruce, uh, welcome to our uh, Nürburgring 24 coverage this weekend for the first time in a wee while since you've been involved in that race. When, When were you last looking at the N24? Well, I've watched it from afar, but the last time I was standing in that ultra-crowded pit lane was in the early 1990s. I think I had a run of four in a row from the late 80s, and don't forget, they were very, very different days. But you know what, John? The numbers were much the same, about 180, 150 to 180 starters, immense diversity. But what has really, really changed is the calibre, the depth of strength at the top of the field. It's phenomenal now, and you can see that in the fact that we now deal in winning margins of uh, under half a minute rather than five laps, yeah. three laps. It's a really different kettle of fish, but the essence of the race remains. Yeah, and the variety as well. We'll talk a little bit about that with Bruce in a moment here on Midweek Motorsport. Uh, let's start at the top of the uh, the sheet as far as the entries are concerned. Last year's winners, BMW, Rover Racing, uh, Nicky Katzberg, John Edwards, uh, Nick Yellerly from the UK. Here. Uh, and Philip Eng, who joins us now uh, f- on his way to or from, he's uh, in the car, I can hear, uh, at the moment. Uh, Philip, ha- how do you, even can you, how do you prepare for an uh, event like this? Yeah, you cannot really, com- uh, you cannot really um, prepare yourself because um, at the Nürburgring, you always have to expect the unexpected, um, which is most likely the weather, as we also uh, see it this this weekend uh, it will probably be wet or or very changing conditions but of course i tried to prepare as, as much as i could um on, on the simulator and of course uh, looking through the data from the 24-hour quality race or for the six-hour quality race and i i really hope we can repeat our victory from last year i mean there are so many 
especially this year, so many good cars on the grid um, with extremely talented drivers. And, and win, to win this race, you also need to be you also need to be lucky, and uh, that's what BMW achieved last year. We often say of other races like Le Mans or Daytona or Sebring that endurance racing is effectively a sprint race now. You have to drive out flat out all the time. Is that the case now on the Nürburgring as well? 100%. Um, I mean, any time flat out from let's go and um, there is just no room for a 95% drop. Um, it's always 100% flat out because you need to be... In my opinion, you need to be starting at the front of the grid um, to be able to, you know, just have a faultless race. Um, because once the group in front of you is gone, you can you can be in the position to the code 60 or code 120, which the guys ahead didn't. So it's flat out every left, every corner. Thanks for being with us, Philip. Thank you very much, guys. Bye-bye. Interesting what Philip was saying there, Bruce. Uh, I mean... They won last year, but it's clean slate uh, right now. Everybody starts in the same place. Um, BMW, uh, I suppose, have got as good a chance as, as any of the other manufacturers there. And the Rover team know what they're doing. We've seen that in the early races of the season. Um, and that looks a good squad. Katzberg, Edwards, Yellowly and, and Eng. They could, uh, they could defend this, this race this year. So many variables, John. In fact, one variable already is the fact that we got John Edwards back with the crew, whereas last year it was Alexander Sims who completed that quartet. But, you know, the more I look at it, it it really looks like a Porsche year for me. They've been winning. They won the first two rounds of the NLS, the Langstrecken series here. They've had huge success in the GT World Challenge uh, endurance rounds, just looking really good. And I looked down the qualifying race results, and I have to look down to eighth place to find that Rover Racing BMW behind the best of the Audis, Porsches, Mercedes. But there are a lot of Porsches up there, which is something that maybe will not live out. But it doesn't seem to matter what the temperature is. Uh, this year, the Porsches just seem to have a real hand on everything. But then again, maybe all their ducks have simply been in a row, which whatever happens in terms of driving, you still need everything to be working for you when the field is this tight. Uh, Porsche have certainly brought the the air game in terms of drivers, as of all the, the, the German manufacturers, absolutely littered all of their cars with names that people will recognise. Uh, Lawrence Vanter, Roman, uh, Roman Dumas for, for Rudtronic, uh, along with Tobias Müller, Julian Andlauer, the, the French ace. Uh, in the, uh, in the uh, two uh, quote-unquote privateer-entered cars, Fricadelli Racing Team, obviously um, very emotional for Klaus Ablen and the rest of the team having lost Sabine Schmidt earlier uh, in the season. But Earl Bamba, Matt Campbell, Matty Jaminier, Nick Tandy, Max Martin, Fred Makovicki, Dennis Olsen, Patrick Peely. I mean, that those two cars, the 31 and the 30 cars, that really teams of all talents. Uh, just not a weak link in any of those. But you know the one that always catches my eye? Here's a driver who just has this, well, two drivers, and they're paired together. One Kiwi, one Australian in um, Earl Bamber and Matt Campbell, they've got a winning habit. And we all know at any level of professional, if you're at the top level of any professional sport, if you have that momentum and that ultimate belief that you can pull it out of the bag, it just makes that scintilla of difference. And I think they're really flying high at the moment. So 
But again, look at those crews. Patrick Pillay, Fred Makiviki, what they don't know about racing a GT car ain't <laughs> worth knowing. It is phenomenal. But then you flick down the order. You flick down, not necessarily the order, just the num- going by numbers and the quality in this field. And you know what? In the past decade, the amount of GT racing around the world, if you're the likes of a some of the top drivers you can race every weekend almost on any continent pandemic allowing and they are so on top of these cars that you know it just drives down not to hundredths of a second that's why we're often separated by thousands of a second almost around a lap as long as the nordschleife the 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 other big german manufacturer of course is is mercedes benz Uh, haven't won it for a little while adam christadoulou joins us from the Nürburgring. Adam, thanks for being with us. Is it is it Merck's turn this year? I really hope so. I think um, it's it's been <laughs> it's been a few years too many. Uh, I think we got pretty close uh, in 2018 with a second. Um, obviously, 2016 we were able to win it. 2018 we were second, and then the last two years have been a bit of a disaster. So I'm hoping that it is time for our looks to change and. Uh, and uh, we'll be hopefully having something to celebrate at the end of the week. Weather always plays a part in the Eiffel Mountains. Uh, the weather forecast for the weekend is rubbish to even worse. Uh, is there anything that you guys can do to plan for that and, and to, to kind of get some kind of logistics in your head about what might happen? Well, I've brought my armbands with me, but uh, apart from that, I don't think there's too much we uh, we can do. It's uh, <laughs> the Nurburgring's always full of surprises, and and even when the weather forecast does say it's going to be beautiful sunshine, it's guaranteed at some point it's going to rain. And to be honest, it can also happen the other way round, where um, we were out here testing the other week, and it was forecast to rain the whole time we were here, and we ended up with beautiful sunshine. So. Hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, the weather forecast might be incorrect, but uh, I'm pretty certain it's guaranteed to rain at some point. I've heard there might be, even be a weather warning oh. um, on Thursday with thunderstorms, so uh, oh, that could right. be quite interesting. Well, the, the quali race was gorgeous weather. I did the, the comms on on that, and it was about perfect, wasn't it? What do, what do you learn from that? The, the Nürburgring changes from lap to lap so how much can you you take away from doing that six hour race well for us actually it ended up being uh, pretty good what we did notice even though the result wasn't very good in the end we we got a little unfortunate with uh, a slow zone we just pitted we thought right let's do the undercut we pitted and uh, to try and get that 18 second advantage um, from having a shorter stop to try and get ahead of one or two cars that were holding us up Unfortunately, on the outlap, uh, I ended up getting caught in a 40-second slow zone. So uh, <laughs> that advantage uh, very rapidly disappeared, and we were back behind the cars we were fighting with to try and overtake. But what we did notice compared to some of the other races was it seemed the hotter it was, the more the others suffered with tyre uh, degradation. So uh, to be honest, uh, we'd be pretty happy if it was equally as warm for this weekend, but uh, yeah, as, as we've already sort of figured out, I don't think it's going to be <laughs> quite quite like that. But uh, what we did manage to do was um, we managed to get the blue light and, and into uh, the top qualifying, which was the main goal. We sort of sacrificed the result in the end and uh, brought it in 
a lap early to put a new set of tyres on and, and try and set some purple sectors and uh, make sure that we guarantee ourselves into the top qualifying and just ease a little bit of pressure during this week. How important in a 24-hour race at the Nürburgring with all that track and all that traffic, how important is qualifying then? Uh, it is more important than you realise. The thing is, when you're at the front, it, the, the race tends to stretch out and, and the strengths of the, the uh, Mercedes-AMG seems to be uh, on the start of the Nordsch life um, and through all the wiggly stuff. Once we get to the main straight, we struggle uh, a little bit. There's one or two others which uh, have their advantage on the straight. So, of course, if we're able to get that gap before we get to the dotting hoe, the big, like, two and a half kilometer, three kilometer straight, then then we're okay. If we're fighting by that point, we might struggle to keep them behind us just because the slipstream is so mm. powerful here. So... Uh, for us, it is more important to be in clean air and just setting fast lap after fast lap. So uh, it's always good to be near the front. And uh, when it is that way, you feel like you can control it a little bit better as well. And as f- you mentioned something that I, I need to ask you a quick question about, actually, because a lot of people will look at the regulations for Nürburgring racing and go... Ugh. Oh, mandatory pit stops, takes all the tactics out of it. But it's quite the reverse at the Nürburgring Nordschleifer, particularly in the in the 24-hour race, because you were talking there about coming in a lap early because there's the, there's the table, isn't there, that says if you have done X many laps, your minimum stop is Y seconds, and it changes as it goes through. So the guys on the pit wall are working really hard, and I presume... That you as a driver have got to be saying, guys, I'm stuck here. I can't get past them. We're going to have to do something. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, so for, for the shorter race, it is. Um, you can uh, be a little bit... Well, you, you can manipulate uh, the pit stops a little bit. Obviously, if you take a shorter stop near the start of the race, then you have to take a longer stop towards the end, and uh, it kind of comes back and... Um, and, and haunts you a little bit towards the end of the race but if you can get that advantage uh, at the start and get in the clear air and just put in the fast laps then then it goes well in the smaller races you can you can use the strategy a little bit more um because you do have a few laps of leniency either way for when you're going to stop obviously if you stop short at the start then you're gonna have to stop longer towards the end but if you do manage to get yourself in that clear track then of course uh, and you get to put in loads of fast laps, then you don't have to worry about that too much. But uh, in the 24 hours, it's going to be more about maximising the fuel tank and the tyres for eight laps. I think uh, every car can basically do uh, eight full laps. Uh, obviously, the 24-hour layout is an extra uh, kilometre or two longer than the, the usual VLN layout. So we get a little bit of extra fuel Um Every brand gets a little bit of extra fuel for the 24 hours. Uh, otherwise, you will end up running out uh, with a kilometre or two to, to go. And uh, it'll be then towards the end of the race, of course, during a 24, with the weather conditions, when people come in, when you decide to change tyres uh, for different situations. Uh, it can put people on different strategies towards the end. But uh, generally, I think uh, you'll, you'll try and complete eight laps all the way through unless you do happen to uh, get stuck uh, in a little bit of a traffic jam with other cars that you, you struggle to get past. So, uh, again, you've got to trust with what the uh, the engineers and the guys behind the pit wall 
are calculating um, because it is such a long lap. The the difference between doing seven or eight laps mm. uh, near the start can be a huge difference at the end of the race. We wish you all the best. Uh, be safe. Race well. And, you, you know, you've got a lot of supporters going to be tuning in over uh, the weekend. We've got every session yeah, yeah. live. So good luck, fella. And, and best to to the guys who are driving with you, Mauro, Manuel and, and Luca as well. That's a good looking team there, mate. Good looking and Thanks quick. Thanks very much. Cheers, Adam. Catch you in a bit. Cheers. Very interested to hear uh, what Adam, and, and in fact earlier on what F- uh, Philip Eng said as well about qualifying being important because it gives you the chance to run with the 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 leads pack there the, the, the AMG teams uh, HRT team get speed um, just as strong as any of their their German uh, their German competitors Bruce absolutely so again just look on down the list and when you get a car that's got Adam Christodoulou Maro Engel Manuel Metzger a Lucas Stoltz again not a weak link it just really focuses on how these drivers have put in years of racing GTs but with something like the NLS it just gives the teams chances to practice mm. and if this is a sort of one-off as we have with other 24-hour races they they might have a short race around that circuit the weather could be different but here, they, well, let's face it, in the Langstrecken series, you get a chance to try every single form of weather <laughs> through the course of the season. But it's just perfect practice. And it's little things. It's in and out of the pits, getting it absolutely, you know, millimetre perfect. And all these things just add up towards the ultimate equation. And so no wonder all the crews are out here as much as they possibly can getting in practice ahead of this race, ahead of qualifying. And in its yeah. own way, qualifying is quick fire. It's exciting and it's going to make fantastic TV and radio. Yeah, and that top 30 shootout, always something I look forward to. We'll have all of that. In fact, we'll have all the sessions for you live in sound and vision. Uh, No blocks, no payment required uh, across the weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and, of course, through into Sunday for the race. If we look at the top of the entry list in SP9, which is FIA GT3, effectively, and let's add in SPX as well, because they're... They kind of have the same kind of, uh, of, uh, of performance there. We've got a couple of SPX entries, 34 uh, um, GT3, SP9 entries. The German flag dominates in terms of uh, the teams that are entered. Um, but there are some very interesting teams in there that are not German flagged. And I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of those. CP Racing. The Charleses, Putman and Espenlau, along with Joe Foster and Shane Lewis. Those guys love this race. They love their endurance racing. They made the, the jump to Mercedes-AMG a few years ago. They've got the latest Evo. And this is one of those teams where, yes, I feel they want a result, but they come and they enjoy it and they come with an open mind. And that is something that hasn't changed from the last time you stood in the pit lane at the Nürburgring. Some people are going for outright victory. Others are going for their own particular target, whether it's a top 20 finish, a top 10 finish, winning, winning your class, whatever it is, whether in the slowest car in the field or the fastest. And actually, John, if I can wind it back to when I first visited, uh, we talked earlier of the dearly 
much missed Sabine Schmitz. When I first saw her competing, she was in things like Ford Fiesta XR2Is back in the late 1980s, early 90s. So she, and often in two cars in the course of a race as well, because she just couldn't get enough of this circuit. But yeah, again, diversity, you've got your targets. But with, with the Charleses in CP racing, we've seen them for, what, at least five seasons, transatlantic crossing to do all the 24H series, um, but then dipping their toes in ever deeper ponds. They just simply love their racing. And the Nürburgring, as we know, provides a season of racing in one 24-hour stint. Absolutely. It's phenomenal. Absolutely right. Uh, away from the German brands uh, in terms of the marks, never mind the teams, uh, a couple of, uh, of teams who, who don't have the black, red and yellow of German alongside them who are running uh, different cars. Conrad Motorsport, uh, Austria, of course, Lamborghini Huracan, the Hankook uh, Triple F racing team, also in a Lamborghini, and Octane 126 with a Ferrari 488 Swiss flag team, Hop Swiss, as I am con- still contractually obliged to do. Ferrari, uh, Lamborghini have been there or thereabouts. Ferrari have never won this race, uh, and there's never that many Ferraris entered, and I, I, I've never been able to accurately. Uh, work that out and answer that question when we're asked about it but we've seen that 126 car show great speed uh, in the hands of particularly Jonathan Hershey Simon Trummer, Luca Ludwig Bjorn Grossman is uh, is with them this time Um, it's so hard because there are so few of them generally in the race but that's a good entry it is, and it's not the only uh, 488 GT3. There's the number 22 car, WTM, powered by Phoenix, George Weiss, Indy Donchi, Jochen Krumbach, Oof. and the flyer in that one, Daniel Kylewitz. Look out for that, too. I have a quick look at the, my notes, and uh, the last time we saw a Ferrari anywhere near the front, second place in 2010. But then again, 2010 to 2021, the, the competition has ramped right up. But that WTM Ferrari did get a top 10 place in the opening NLS round this year. There or thereabouts, the Octane 126 car always shows great flashes of speed. But again, it's about keeping that going through the 24 hours. But great to have the variety. Obviously, the German manufacturers will be plugging this race with more of their works cars because, of course, it's their biggest showpiece. Yeah. Um, but it's great to have the variety. We, we revel in variety, John. Yeah, we heard Jim talking early on, Jim Glickenhaus, about the SCG 004C. Uh, Felipe Fernandez, Frank Moyer, Thomas Much, Richard Westbrook. Um, Frank and Richard, obviously part of their uh, hypercar, LM uh, Le Mans hypercar team as well. On Michelin's this year, which given the weather forecast might be uh, good news for those guys. At those 30, what did I say, 36, we would expect, unless there's a plague of frogs um, or maybe hailstones again, uh, will be at the sharp end of the field and the winner should come from that. But always worth looking, and again, this hasn't changed either, Bruce, since the last time uh, you were at the ring. Um, always worth looking beyond there. There's a good seven-car GT4 entry, SP10, as it is here. Schnitzelam racing in there, bright Mercedes, Marek Bockman et al. Uh, they'll be there. The Hoffer racing by Bonk uh, with Claudia Hurtgen um, uh, would be the, the name most people will uh, I'll pick up from there. But interesting as well that Toyota GR Supra uh, as well Novel Racing I'm interested to see how that goes we've still got an Aston Martin as well in there just seven GT4s which is slightly disappointing for me as I'm, I'm a fan of GT4s of course I am um, having raced one myself in the in the past but again that is a quality field all the way through perhaps 
not quite as chock full with the big names as, of course, the big classes. I, too, would have expected more cards to be coming out to play in that because, as we've seen over the past, well, particularly the last half dozen years, GT4 racing has just grown like topsy. Mm. Um, Can't honestly answer why. Maybe (laughs) why there aren't more of them in the field. Maybe next year. We all know we're still racing in slightly straightened times and Mm. uh, a lot of programs just got parked until... You know, the deck is clear for a clear run at uh, what they want to do. So maybe 2022, we will see their numbers grow. No complaints, clearly, with the top class. But SP10, yeah, it could be topped up. But then again, it will provide a group of really quick cars that we can watch when we're looking for stories through the course of the race, performing in their respective classes. And you can do that the whole way down to sort of SP3T and, you know, all the junior classes. And that's always something, you know, in the small hours of the morning, you're loving the racing, but let's just take a look and off you go down the time charts. Then you find them and go, good grief. They were 10 seconds apart four hours ago. They're only eight seconds apart now. I love that. I love that about this race. One of the other classes uh, that has really suffered, it would seem to me, is the normally stacked full Porsche effectively cup class the the 991s as they still are here gt3 gen 1 and gen 2 only four entries in that but great to see bill cameron stalwart of this race is back he's got some big competition he's running with peter bonk of bonk motorsport fame in the pp uh, peter bonk performance car uh, mario farmbacker patrick heisman nicholas johnson and tracy cron the standout there rpm with cron uh, racing in that four-car field. Also, like to point out as well, Bruce SP8. Just a couple of of the entries there, and my goodness, you couldn't get any different. A GT4 Evo for the GT Tire Motorsport car, and and that is the Pitmanman. Uh, Celia Martin, Carrie Schreiner and Christina Nielsen following her dad who's uh, raced here I'm pretty certain as well in the past and they're up against an RCF Lexus as I say it couldn't get much different and there's the variety just two cars in the class but my goodness they are poles apart in terms of the philosophy of those two cars one of the great glories apart from carrying a beer with you and you walk out into the forest at night to, to watch the cars at speed, whether it's in practice, qualifying, whatever, is that chance to see the cars in the paddock. In fact, you almost can't see them if you're lucky enough to get in the pit garage because they're stacked so deeply. You know, four cars, the garage, oh, don't open the door, I'm coming past. It's better to see them out in the paddock than you can take a look. But the diversity, and sometimes you go, oh, look, someone's brought their road car in. It's got numbers on the door. How quite, oh, they're competing, are they? And that's in the bottom <laughs> class. But, you know, again, there's something for everyone in there. Uh, I'm delighted to see that uh, my former teammate, Peter Kate is back for his 50 millionth run at it. Uh, he won his class last year after only being... Uh, introduced to the team at very late notice. He's back in the 718 GT4 Cayman Club Sport for Team Mathol Racing, uh, and he will be tremendously uh, uh, competitive in, again, a small class, but they'll be looking to get well up the field in that. Slightly disappointed as well at TCR. We've seen only six entries for that this year, but it includes a couple of entries from Hyundai Motorsports. Their N division is their sports division with an, an Elantra N TCR and the I30N TCR. Both of those two cars will be expected to be at the front and and should be when you look at the quality of the drivers there. Um, Mark Bessing in the 830, which is the Elantra, Luca Engsler and Jean-Carl Vernier in the I30N. I mean, those guys have driven in the bigger classes in the past. There's a lot of experience there. And it just 
underlines, Bruce, how important this race is right the way through the classes. Well, it, it absolutely does. In fact, Mark Bassing won this race in 2012, driving a Team Phoenix Audi. So, and again, of course, success at the Mall, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it does, and, and that's why you really don't just stop reading when you go beneath the top class in this race because you have got drivers. Jean-Carl Verne, how many years has he been racing TCRs? They're there for a reason, and that's win the class. They're not going to win outright, quite clearly, from the TCR class. But again, can't quite work out uh, with all the various world and European championships in TCR why we don't have more coming to play in this race. But Hyundai has always really put its nailed its colours to the endurance racing flag so you can understand why they're out to play here. It's seen, of course, as a stamping ground of the German marks at the Nürburgring 24, but uh, for the Japanese, for the for the crew from Hyundai, if they can uh, knit it together, well, it's going to be a big one for them. Uh, no time to go through all of the other classes, but there is one class that I want to uh, pick out, which is a perfect representation of variety, and also will have uh, at least a couple of the fan favourites in it. This is SP3. Um, there are only four entries in it. Um, however, uh, it's brilliant uh, two toyotas but they couldn't be more different a toyota corolla altis gt n24 entered no less by toyota kazoo racing team thailand uh with uh, grant superpongs i have a strong suspicion that there will be another very long uh, thai name to go into that as well a gt86 cup car for pit lane amz Sankt vith which is the uh town which is on the border of belgium and uh, and Germany, just uh, south of uh, of Spa. Um, so two Toyotas of differing. And then you have the Flying Foxtail uh, from uh, the Automobile Club von Deutschland, uh, which is back in. Volker Streicek, former boss of Opel Performance Centre, he's back in with that. Trigger's broom has been rebuilt again. Uh, and interesting to see that back out just after Opel have, have released the previous version of that car, the original uh, Manta GTE, as an electric car, as a con- con- uh, concept. Uh, and Ollie's Garage with the Dacia Logan for Doom, not his real name, uh, as well as Mikhail Sharadin, uh, Oliver Kreis and Michael Lackmeyer. I've got a suspicion that we'll be getting a lot of texts about those two cars and that SP3 class. Yeah, and an- another thing uh, that's short to cut. One thing I always like are the, are the pseudonyms that people race under. You've got Doom in the race, you've got Iceman, and they don't always live up to the, the tag they've uh, given themselves. But uh, we've got someone racing just under the name of Brody. But I think Iceman gets it for me. I don't think Doom's necessarily, necessarily the best nomenclature. Yeah, we, we need a Maverick uh, and a Goose as yes. well to go with, with Iceman uh, at the moment. I, I, speaking uh, earlier in the week to, to Adam before we set that interview, while we set that interview, all the GT3 drivers have said they'd happily chip in uh, a few quid apiece to give the Dacia Logan another 100 or 150 horsepower because they find it very difficult to get by because of the closing speed. And, and in closing, you know, that... That is the key, isn't it, uh, when we're talking about this race over the 24 hours of the weekend, is that an incident and disaster is literally lurking around every single corner for the guys at the front and for the guys in the classes because those GT3 cars come up amongst all the other classes so very quickly. Oh, entirely. And, I mean, you could could have at any point six cars spread between four classes trying to take a sequence of three corners and therefore your variables are just massive and it's also the reaction when one 
pool ball hits another one, they don't always go where you're expecting. <laughs> and as we, you know, as you look at the circuit, it's just we've talked about this again and again, John. There's the circuit, there are the curbs, there's a blink, and then there's a barrier. That's mm. effectively how much the grass is in a lot of the circuit. It's just a bit of green rather than anything that does anything. It gives a tiny bit of space, but this is a very, very special circuit, and that is why the experience the drivers can carry into this race really, really works. And yeah. the fact that we've got drivers like Volker Strychek not driving the fastest car anymore, he's a former winner of this event. He's been racing on the Nordschleife, I would say, for getting on for 40 years now. So, yeah. again, he knows what he's doing, but he's not driving a quick car. So he's got to react accordingly. But um, not everyone's going to get it right in the first hour, let alone all 24. But it's about... Uh, the, the marshals signaling as clearly as they can. And don't forget, the less experienced drivers, just keeping the car on the islands hard oh, yes. enough. Then you've got someone coming up 40, 50 kph faster than you, and you're doing your, your utmost to get around the next sequence of corners. So it's unbelievably difficult. But if it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't be the challenge that makes it such a great race. Totally agree, Bruce. Uh, Bruce will be joining myself, Peter McKay, uh, uh, Peter McKay, excuse me, uh, Joe Bradley, Peter Snowden as well uh, across the weekend and our coverage in sound and vision via radio-show.co.uk we'll make sure we put that out on the socials starts on Thursday that's tomorrow if you're listening to us live Uh, you you know could be listening to the podcast Uh, and uh, thank you Bruce I'm I'm looking forward to that Tim because of our coverage that necessitates a few changes on Thursday for our normal Thursday magazine programs doesn't it it does Uh, so normally on the grid would be at nine o'clock but that's right in the middle of a session right Uh, so on the grid uh, is now on at the earlier time that's earlier than normal Right. Of, uh, six o'clock. Six o'clock UK. Six o'clock in the UK. So on the grid, right. it's going to be three hours earlier than it normally would be. Oh, but still on RS1, correct? Still on RS1. And yeah. tomorrow so we've night... So got, we've got the second qualifying there at 7.20 UK. Yes. So where does the SimCast go? Hang on. I haven't told you about on the grid yet. So All tomorrow right. night, uh, <laughs> they are going to be talking to Lee Diffie, the voice of... Stiffy! Uh, the uh, man that drinks more rosé than anyone else in America. In America, probably, yes. He probably drinks more rosé than anyone in Australia as well. He's a big fan of rosé. Does he like it warm or chilled? Well, chilled, I would think. Because you don't have to chill it. I... I the Stiffmeister likes his wine chilled. He might be Brisb- talking about Brisbane's that finest. Uh, I, I think he probably won't. And <laughs> he's also going to be talking about what he's doing this summer in Tokyo. Standing around doing out. <laughs> or uh, long jump, high jump, and triple jump for NBC at the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, then he's not doing that. He's talking about it. Talking I would, because listen, does. He I would about tune things. in. I would tune in to watch <laughs> Lee Diffie doing long jump, high jump, and Pole triple vault. jump. Triple jump in particularly. Javelin. Oh, yeah, all of that. Uh, so that's tomorrow at six p.m. Correct. Yes, and also Tom Arculi from Doric, one of the longest-serving supporters oh, okay. and sponsors of Australian motorsport, 
uh, we'll be explaining what makes motorsport sponsorship work. And this isn't just something that's relevant to Australia. This is relevant all oh. over the world. Good um, point. Why do they pick the drivers to support that they, uh, that they do? Uh, so that means that uh, so that's on the grid, which is at the early time of six o'clock, uh, and the simcast is on at the later than usual time of ten forty-five. Oh, okay. Um, which so might after even be ten fifty, depending how long it takes those cars to get around uh, uh, on their final lap once checkered flag drops. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, somewhere between ten forty-five and ten fifty will be the simcast. Yeah, right. And okay, so after N N twenty-four qualifying two session yes. anyway. Yeah, tomorrow night it is Matt and Jordan. They'll be discussing the news that Assetto Corsa two is coming in twenty twenty-four. Ooh, uh, there's news. a big update for Automobilista two in the US, and they've got news on uh, the brand new Forza Motorsport twenty twenty-two. Really, which Very is so new that it's not out till next year. But but because they are the premier online and uh, computer racing uh, radio show, they've got all the news first. So yes. excellent stuff. And presumably there'll be an esports roundup if there have been any big esports. Yeah, there have been a few bits and pieces uh, over the as last well. Week. Uh, coming up next, we've got the historic racing news. Uh, radio show that Tim was talking about earlier on so we're going to squeeze in some more news about more live racing at the weekend because it's the return of ELMS and Michelin Le Mans Cup at the weekend and they're at Ricard. They are indeed Johnny Palmer and uh, Graham Goodwin will be talking us through those that coverage starts on Saturday morning uh, yeah, it's Saturday. It's effectively Saturday, Sunday with MLMC qualifying. Yeah. Uh, mm. One thing I do want to mention, not uh, specifically about uh, ELMS, uh, but about Le Mans. Right. A story I picked up from uh, Germany uh, <laughs> regarding Herbert Motorsport. Oh yes, this is very interesting. Now. now Obviously, we, used we, to we covered the 12 yes. as the Hockenheim ring uh, yes. a couple of weeks ago. And yes. uh, what car did Herbert Motorsport turn up with? A poor, a poor, a Ferrari. A 488 GT3. Yes, and, and why were they doing that? Well, I'll bounce that back to you. Uh, somebody on air speculated that's because, ah, that's the car that they have uh, got to run in the 2021 Le Mans 24-hour race, because, of course, uh, they got an invitation to the Le Mans 24 hours because they won the GT class in the Asian Le Mans series earlier this year. Correct. And why were they running a Ferrari and not their usual Porsche? Uh, this year, uh, for Le Mans, they couldn't run uh, a Porsche because there is no 2021 spec Porsche available for them. Correct. Um, They've run but out. that's not why they were running it in, or weren't were running the Ferrari at the Hockenheim ring. Um, and as uh, Ben found out when he talked to them on the grid, uh, it was because they were running that in another, or had just finished running it. Correct. In another race in ADAC GT, possibly. Uh, was it that? I think it was. I think you're right. Yes, um, I think, I think you're right. However, the whole running the same car at Le Mans thing has been thrown 
up in the air yes. with a bit of news out of Germany, as you uh, see. According to uh, German website uh, JT Eins, uh, they found a uh, driver who wants to race for them. Yeah. Um, who presumably wants to give them a lot of money to race for them. It's Le Mans. Um, and this driver is absolutely adamant that he will not get into a Ferrari. Oh, really? So um, what does he want to drive instead? They've told him, but we can't find a Porsche. And right. he said, I think I might know where there's a Porsche. Right. However, because uh, they're not 100% convinced that uh, there is an affordable Porsche available, uh, they're also looking at Aston Martins. <laughs> <laughs> and Aston Martins have a history of doing quite well at Le Mans well, recently. Uh, yes, they do. And it's a very, very nice car for uh, non-pro drivers to drive. And uh, I... I think that's interesting that they've decided to to go that way, or potentially. We'll keep an eye on that, then. We on, will keep on, an eye. On the subject of um, uh, gentlemen drivers, yep. someone who might be regarded as still being one, mm-hmm. uh, or now being one, uh, is Richard Dean. <laughs> yes. All right. No, no, he's not. But his partner in crime is. That would be Zach Brown. So yeah. they are United Autosport uh, management. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're going to race. In um, They are. This is a GT4 car, though, a McLaren GT4. Yes. Hmm. Uh, I went to the test of their first two McLaren GT4s at Snet last year uh, when Zach was driving his Williams. Formula One car and Richard did have a few laps in it then and pronounced it a very nice car to drive and this, is this the GT4 European Championship they're going it to is. go so for? they're going to be racing yeah. at Zandvoort in two weeks time nice nice uh, they've taken the number 230 um, which I suppose is sensible when you consider their existing regular season cars are 23 and 32 yeah um so, uh, Zach Brown says, I'm so excited to be getting back behind the wheel of a race car at Zandvoort. Uh, he's obviously raced at Zandvoort before then. I bet um, he's done some um, historic stuff there. Although Richard not in the current, in the current uh, uh, version of track, it. Yes. track configuration, yeah. Uh, Richard Dean added, it's been a long time since I last raced a United <laughs> Autosports car, so I'm really looking forward to racing the McLaren GT4. Uh, Zach and I have only really competed in historic events over the last few years, but we've been pretty successful. Uh, I'm excited to be taking part in the GC4 events at Zandvoort. It's one of Europe's great venues. I'm sure it was only because they couldn't get me to come and drive for them. Although, I did get the offer of a drive today, and we'll follow that, follow that up uh, later on, because it falls on a weekend when I'm not working. So we'll have some, some words about that later on. So ELMS at the weekend... Uh, starts on is Saturday. that Friday? Uh, yes, Saturday uh, at five past eleven UK time for qualifying. Twelve thirty-five ELMS qualifying, three ten MLMC race, and then the ELMS four hour race on Sunday at nine forty UK. Yes. We've got uh, all of the Nurburgring, and by the way, that's in Sound and Vision. So is the Nurburgring, and there are 
We've checked. Um, we had a, uh, somebody saying it was blocked in Belgium last year. I'm not sure what was going on, but it wasn't blocked in Belgium last year. And it's not black blocked in Belgium or indeed anywhere else. So if you go to radio-o.co.uk, we've got sound and vision from 20 past 11, 11.20 UK time on Thursday, tomorrow morning. And then if you go to the bottom of radio-o.co.uk and look at the RS1 schedule, that's when we've got video as well. So make sure you do that. Thanks to Jim Glickenhouse for talking us through his journey from the paddock to the restaurant tonight, to Philip Eng and to Adam Christodoulou, our regular contributors, Shea and Nick and Bruce Jones, who'll be joining me and Peter Mackay tomorrow and Friday, and it'll be Bradders and Snowy in on the weekend as well. Busy weekend with uh, JP and Gooders on ELMS duty. Responsible adult was Shea Adam, Tim Gray, our executive producer. I said, I said shit, Adam again, didn't I? I mean, our responsible adult is Eve Hewitt. Very sorry, Eve. Um, I'm looking at uh, Shea's uh, Skype call here. Uh. No, no, Skype call. I'm, I'm still on the computer in front of me. The responsible adult is always Eve Hewitt. Uh, and Tim Gray is our executive producer up in London. It's historic racing news radio show with uh, Tarsi Tarsi and the rest of the team. That comes up next. Join us for a packed weekend on RS1, RS3 and in Sound and Vision at radio-show.co.uk. But there's no time to explain because the llama is stuck on the A14 in tomato ketchup. Look at this programme is a Radio Show Limited production. For more, subscribe to Midweek Motorsport wherever you get your podcasts.